Section 17 of The Wit and Humor of America, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Read by Dennis Smith. A Letter from Petroleum V. Nasby. I am requested to act as chaplain of the Cleveland Convention that beautiful city visited for that purpose. Post Office Confederate Crossroads, which is in the state of Kentucky, September twentieth, 1866. I was sent for to come to Washington from my comfortable quarters at the post office to attend the convention of such soldiers and sailors of the United States as believe in a union of thirty-six states and who have sworn allegiance to a flag with thirty-six stars on to it at Cleveland. My esteemed and lifelong friend and co-laborer, Reverend Henry Ward Beecher, was to have been the chaplain of the convention, but he failed us, and it was decided in a cabinet meeting that I should take his place. I didn't see the necessity of having a chaplain at every little convention of our party, and so stated, but Stewart remarked, with a groan, that if ever there was a party, since parties was invented, which needed praying for, ours was that party. And parson, said he, glancing at a list of delegates, if you have any agonizing petitions, any prayers of extra fervency, offer em up for these fellers. If there is any efficacy in prayer, it's my honest, unbiased opinion that there never was in the history of the world, nor never will be again, such a magnificent chance to make it manifest. Try yourself particularly on Custer, though after all, continued he, in a musing, abstracted sort of way, which he's fallen into lately, the fellow is such a trifling being that he really can hardly be held sponsible for what he's doing, and the balance of em, good heavens, they're mostly drove to it by hunger and the secretary maundered on something about sixty days and ninety days, paying no more attention to the rest of us as if we wasn't there at all. So, receiving transportation and sufficient money from the Secret Service Fund for expenses, I departed for Cleveland, and after a tedious trip through an abolition country, I arrived there. My thoughts were gloomy beyond expression. I had recently gone through this same country as chaplain to the presidential tour, and every station had its peculiar unpleasant remembrances. Here was where the cheers for Grant were vociferous, with nary a snort for His Excellency. There was where the peasantry laughed in his face when he went through the regular ritual of presenting the Constitution and the flag with thirty-six stars unto it to a district assessor. There was— But why recount my sufferings? Why harrow up the public bosom, or lacerate the public mind? Suffice to say, I endured it. Suffice to say that I had strength left to ride up Bank Street in Cleveland, the scene of the most awful insult the executive ever received. The evening I arrived, the delegates, such as was on hand, held an informal meeting to arrange matters so as they would work smooth when the crowd finally got together. General Wool was as gay and frisky as though he really belonged to the last generation. There was Custer, of Michigan, with his hair freshly oiled and curled, and bustling about as though he had cheated himself into the belief that he really amounted to something. And there was seventy-eight other men, who had distinguished themselves in the late war, 
but who had never got their deserts, excepting by brevet, owing to the fact that the administration was abolition, which they wasn't. They were, in a pecuniary point of view, something the worse for wear, though why that should have been the case I couldn't see, they having been, to an alarming extent, quartermasters and commissaries, and in the recruiting service, till I noticed the prevailing color of their noses, and heard one of em ask his neighbor if Cleveland was blessed with a faro bank. Then I knowed all about it. There was another peculiarity about it which for a time amused me. Them as was present was divided into two classes, those as had been recently appointed to positions, and them as expected to be shortly. I noticed on the countenances of the first class a look of relief, such as I have seen in factories on Saturday night, after the hands was paid off for a hard week's work, and on the other class the most wolfish, hungry, fierce expression I have ever witnessed. Likewise, I noticed that the latter set of patriots talked more hefty of the necessity of sustaining the policy of our firm and noble president, and damned the abolitionists with more emphasis and fervency than the others. One enthusiastic individual, who had been quartermaster two years, and had been allowed to resign just after the battle, mother, which, having his papers all destroyed, made settling with the government an easy matter, was so ferocious that I felt called upon to check him. "'Gently, my friend,' said I, "'gently. I have been through this thing. I have my commission. It broke out on me just as it has on you. But you won't get your assessorship a minute sooner for it.' "'It ain't a assessorship I want,' says he. "'I have devoted myself to the task of binding up the wounds of my beloved country.' "'Did you stop anybody very much from inflicting them said wounds?' murmured I. "'And if I accept the post-office in my native village, which I have been solicited so strongly to take that I have finally yielded, I do it only that I may devote my few remaining energies wholly to the great cause of restoring the thirty-six states to their normal positions under the flag with thirty-six stars on to it, in spite of the Judas Iscariots, which, if I am whom, what is the Savior, and, and where is... Perceiving that the unfortunate man had got into the middle of a quotation from the speech of our noble and patriotic president, and knowing his intellect wasn't hefty enough to get it off just as it was originally delivered, I took him by the throat and shut off the flood of his eloquence. "'Be quiet, you idiot,' remarked I, soothingly to him. "'You'll get your appointment, because, for the first time in the history of this or any other republic, there is a market for just such men as you.' but all this blather won't fetch it a minute sooner. Good Lord, thought I, as I turned away. What a president A.J. is, to have to buy up such cattle. What a postmaster he must be, whose general cussedness turns my stomach. It was deemed necessary to see of what we was composed. Whatever Colonel K., who is now collector of revenue in Illinois, asked if there was ary a man in the room who had been a prisoner during the late fratricidal struggle. A gentleman of perhaps thirty arose, and said he was. He had been taken three times, and was, altogether, eighteen months in durance vile in three different prisons. Custer fell on his neck, and asked him agitatedly if he was sure, quite sure, after suffering all that, that he supported the policy of the President. "'Are you quite sure? Quite sure?' "'I am,' returned the phenomenon. "'I stand by Andrew Johnson and his policy.' and I don't want no office. Have you got one? shouted they all in chorus. 
Marry, said he, with me it is a matter of principle. What prisons was you incarcerated in? asked I, looking at him with wonder. First at Camp Morton, then at Camp Douglas, and finally at Johnson's Island. Custer dropped him, and the rest remarked that, while they had a very healthy opinion of him, they guessed he'd better not mention his presence, or consider himself a delegate. As generous foes, they loved him rather better than a brother, yet, as the call didn't quite include him, though there was a delightful oneness between them, yet, if twas all the same, he had better not announce himself. He was from Kentucky, I afterwards ascertained. The next morning, something over two hundred more arrived, and the delegations being all in, it was decided to go on with the show. A big tent had been brought in from Boston to accommodate the expected crowd, and quite an animated discussion arose as to which corner of it the convention was to occupy. This settled, the business was begun. General Wool was made temporary chairman, to which honor he responded in an elegant extemporaneous speech, which he read from manuscript. General Ewing made another extemporaneous address, which he read from manuscript, and we adjourned for dinner. The dinner hour was spent in Caucasian privately in one of the parlors of the hotel. The chairman asked who should make speeches after dinner, when every man of them pulled up from his right side coat pocket a roll of manuscript, and said he had jotted down a few IGs which he had concluded to present extemporaneously to the convention. That babble over, the chairman said he presumed someone should be selected to prepare a address, whereupon every delegate rose and pulled a roll of manuscript from his left side coat pocket, and said he had jotted down a few IGs on the situation, which he proposed to present, etc. This occasioned another shindy, when the chairman remarked, Resolutions, when every delegate rose, pulled a roll of manuscript from his right breast coat pocket, and said he had jotted down a few IGs, which, etc. I stood it until someone mentioned me as chaplain to the expedition west, when the pressure become unendurable. They supposed I was keeper of the President's conscience, and I had not a minute's peace after that. In vain I assured them that, there being no consciences about the White House, no one could hold such a office. In vain I assured them that I had no influence with His Majesty. Two-thirds of them pulled applications for places they wanted from the left breastcoat pocket, and insisted on my taking them, and seemed that they was appointed. I told them that I could do nothing for them, but they laughed me to scorn. "'You are just the style of man,' said they, "'who has influence with His Excellency, and you must do it.' Hemmed in, there was but one way of escape, and that way I took. Seizing a carpet-sack, which, by the way, belonged to a delegate, I took it to give myself the look of a traveler. I rushed to the depot and started home entirely satisfied that if Cleveland may be taken as a sample, the less His Majesty depends on soldiers, the better. Petroleum V. Nasby, P.M., which is Postmaster, and likewise late chaplain to the expedition. P.S. I opened the carpet-sack on the train, expecting to find a clean shirt in it, at least. It contained, to my disgust, an address to be read before the Cleveland Convention, a set of resolutions, a speech, and a petition of the proprietor thereof for a collectorship, signed by eight hundred names, 
and a copy of the Indiana State Directory for 1864. The names was in one handwriting, and was arranged alphabetically. Petroleum v. Nasby End of Section 17 A Letter from Petroleum v. Nasby Read by Dennis Smith